you turn over to Matthew chapter 6, I'd like to tell you a story about a young man. His name was Dewey. been having some problems in life, and so he decided to go to a revival. There was a revival happening in the town. He went to this church. The preacher was up front as he went through this uh, very energetic message. Dewey felt like he needed prayer. At the end of the service, uh, the pastor said, if you need prayer, come down forward. Dewey shot out of his chair, went down front, stood in line, got to the front of the line. The pastor looked at him and said, uh, young man, what's your name? He said, my name is Dewey. And he said, how can I pray for you this morning? Dewey said, well, I, uh, I'm having um, problems with my hearing. And so the pastor said, okay. Let me pray for you. He took his index finger, stuck it in Dewey's ear, put his hand on Dewey's head, began to pray. Moments went by. It was a little awkward, man, sticking his finger in your ear, putting a hand on your head. So finally, the the reverend got done, pulled out the finger, took his hand off his head, and so said, how's your hearing now? Dewey said, I don't know. My hearing's not till next Wednesday. Just let it catch up over here. (laughs) You know, I think that issue of confusion on Dewey's part and on the pastor's part often relates to prayer. In other words, what exactly are we doing when we pray? I mean, the reality is is that, that God knows before we pray what we need, right? God has a plan. He has a sovereign plan moving forward. Am I really going to change that plan? He's got it all together. He knows my thoughts. Why do I have to pray? You see, all of these things lead to a lot of confusion when it comes to that. I can tell you actually where I was in a Bible study. We were talking about prayer. I was a young college student. Uh, the individual leading the Bible study was letting us kind of volley back and forth different ideas about prayer. Finally, all eyes were on the leader of this group, and he said, you know what? Prayer doesn't change anything, really. It changes us. Now, that thought stuck in my throat like a chicken bone because I began to rummage through the biblical examples Do you know there's 8,614 mentions of prayer in the Bible? And I think people prayed because they expected change. You couldn't argue with Moses. He prayed he wanted change. Abraham, David. You can go down through the list. We've got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego praying. we got Daniel taking three times a day to pray. Are you telling me they didn't think God knew their thoughts? No, they knew. You're telling me they didn't expect change? I don't believe it for one moment. Matter of fact, this three-week series we're going to do on prayer is going to answer some of these questions. These questions that must have been floating through the mind of the disciples. You see, the disciples could have asked Jesus to teach them anything. How to exegete the Old Testament. Tell me a little bit more about Leviticus and exactly what the sacrifices are meant to accomplish. Could you tell us that? You won't find it. You can look in Scripture. How about casting out a demon? We have one indication in which they didn't do it well, but they never stopped and said, could you give us the step-by-step, the rundown here? Step one, step two, step three. Never did. 
They didn't ask Jesus a lot of things. You know, they only asked him to do one thing. Teach us to pray. Why is that? I think it's because Jesus knew something that the disciples needed to discover. I think Jesus knew something that I need to discover. You need to discover. We need to discover. You see, if you trace the life of Christ, the passage that we find ourselves in, we're about two years into his ministry. And one of the things the disciples knew that they had the the backstory of prayer in the Old Testament was settled. They got that. But the problem is they had a front row seat to somebody who would go away and pray and come back and all of a sudden all the plans would change. Jesus, the beginning of his Galilean ministry. Everything is going fantastic, you know, from Mark chapter 1. Jesus goes out and spends time in prayer, comes back, and, and he's hitting it out of the park as far as baseball kind of terminology is concerned. People are coming from everywhere, from the north, Syria, from the south, from across the Jordan. I mean, it's like a magnet. Uh, people are coming from everywhere, so there's no need to go anywhere. But Jesus spends a night in prayer. And the next thing you know, we're off on the Galilean ministry. I've come to do the will of my father. I didn't come to sit still. I came to, to move around Galilee, to be with the people, to go where they are, not expect them to come to where I was. You know how that happened? Through a night of prayer. Those other times where they run into the demoniac across the lake. He sends the disciples back across the lake. What is Jesus doing? Spending time in prayer. You see, Jesus punctuated his life in times of prayer. So by the time we get over two years into it, the disciples are going, he's on to something here. Because when he prays, things happen. He prays and all of a sudden fish multiply. Bread is abundant. What does he know that we need to discover? I think that's the point. When we arrive in Matthew chapter 6, and we have what's famously been called the Lord's Prayer, I think that it was his prayer, but it also is meant to be our prayer. You see, within this prayer, there are particular elements, particular dynamics that we need to think about. We need to measure ourselves accordingly to that, because I think sometimes Our prayers have a tendency to surface and really float about chest high in our life of what we need. Sometimes the focus of our prayers never escape the room we're in. And I think we need to discover what Jesus already knew. So if you're in Matthew chapter 6, we're going to be moving through this in the next three weeks. It's going to take us some time. We're not going to go fast. Uh, But that shouldn't surprise you if you're used to coming here in our teaching because of the richness of the passage that we have is uh, in front of us is is a depth that we can never plumb. Now, I'm going to ask you over these next three weeks, uh, if you take the teaching guide, you got it when you came in. If you didn't, you can pick it up when you go out. Because there's an outline that I'd like you to follow. We've given you the whole outline. We're only going to make it through verse 10 today. But what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to um, marinate on the passage. I'd like you to read it. I'd like you to take the outline and I'd like you to just saturate yourself and move through it. Rich truth like this is not to be 
move through quickly. And one of the things that you'll find is in this outline is it's going to help you orient. As I said, it's not supposed to be a something we just know. It's supposed to be a posture, I think. That's where I think this passage is meant for us to be. It's a posture of how we live. The orientation of our thoughts as it relates to God. So if you look over there in Matthew chapter 6, we're going to read 7 through 13. And this is a time in which Jesus is is shaping them. As I said, we're two years into his ministry. Uh, We're going to start at verse 17 and move through verse 13. It says this, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Uh, Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. One of the first things you might notice before he gets into the meat of the sandwich, you could say, is in those first two verses, seven and eight, he actually tells them that uh, you got to be careful when it comes to, to praying. He starts off indicating some people pray wrong. Some people don't pray as they should. And the two examples he cites, the first is the Gentiles, that they heap up empty phrases. And this makes perfect sense back in this day. The, the Greeks had this pantheon of, of gods. And so what they would do is, like an arrow almost shot into the celestial realms, they would begin to pray. But they never knew which deity was going to pick up on their prayer. So what they would do is they would pray a lot of different prayers, aimed at a lot of different things, almost like randomly just shooting arrows, that they might get the attention of one of the gods. That's how the Greeks were. They had this frightening, trembling format in their prayer a hope that one of those arrows will hit a target and a deity will shine on them. He says, don't be like those people. They heap up these empty phrases. They're just, they're just random stuff in the hopes. Don't, don't be like that. If you pray like that, you pray wrong. Then he goes on for the think they'll be heard for their many words do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him and then in verse 9 as we'll get into he begins to pray one of the things i think that jesus is aiming at because this is not supposed to be a formula this prayer it's supposed to be a posture now you need to know that during this time the jewish people had kind of reacted to the gentile people while the gentiles are shooting arrows into the air the jewish people had their own problem They didn't see God as their father. They saw him as kind of a a lottery machine. That if you hit all of the the, uh, vegetables, the cherry, 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 lemon, 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 then you get God to answer. Matter of fact, during this time, uh, prayer had become an art form. Not a posture, an art form. So that by this time, the tradition would be, before you mention the name of God, you need to mention an attribute of God. So for example, you might begin your prayer and say, Almighty, blessed, 
all-powerful, benevolent, merciful, gracious. And it would go on like that. Matter of fact, by the time we arrive in the day of Jesus, the average person or priest would try to put at least 16 adjectives before they'd mention God's name. 16. I can imagine some alliterating some, couldn't you? You know, the kind of the, the people that were the orders, you know, the A and B and C and D and kind of go through like the Hebrew alphabet, mentioning things, maybe chronologically, you know? You're the creator. You're the sustainer, kind of moving from Genesis, Exodus. You're the deliverer and mentioning all these things. And people in the crowd going, wow, that guy's good. That guy, man, I never would have thought of that adjective. I could see other people, other priests going, man, I missed that one. I'll use that one next time. See that? Greeks are shooting arrows. Jewish people are making it a game. Like a lottery pulling these things and manipulate. God is now, he's receding in the lives of the people in prayer. They show up and the disciples see all this stuff and go, I don't think Jesus does that. It's very different from him. I mean, I can hear a rabbi preach and I can hear a rabbi pray. He doesn't spend all night by himself like our teacher does comes back and he's got direction. He's got insight. <laughs> Boy, that's, I've not seen that. So that's the context. Jesus starts off saying, listen, you can do prayer wrong. They've been seeing it. They've got this itch. Something's not right. So Jesus says, don't be like them. And then he introduces this idea, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. And that's where you might get hung up. That's where you might go, aha, he knows what I need. Why do I pray? That's the type of stuff that Westerners would say. But I'd like to introduce you to a word. Your father. Your father. You see, I think that Jesus is on to something, and he's certainly going to pack it here in a second. As soon as he says your father, the people of the day would kind of listen up. Whoa, what do you mean our father? I mean, I understand he's our God, he's our creator. I get all, but now all of a sudden, he's our father. The implication would be, would you treat your father like that? Would you, would you look at transactionally like he knows what you are thinking, he knows what you're doing, so therefore I'm out of the game. No, that's, that's a weird thing to think. No one would think that. He says, knows what you need before you ask him. I'm betting your father on earth knows what you need too, but you know what you still do? You ask him because you have a relationship. Aha, now we're getting someplace. Now we're leaning in. He's talking about this relationship that uh, the Gentiles couldn't sniff at. The Jewish people had manipulated to oblivion. And now where he says this, and I think the point is, is that you can pray wrongly let me help you understand how to pray. And it's again, it's not a recipe. These are elements. These are postures. These are important things to know. On your teaching guide, if you have one, you'll see a statement at the bottom, A.W. Tozer. He said, a Christian is a holy rebel, loose in this world with access to the throne of God. Satan never knows from which direction 
the attack will come. That's good stuff. But before this becomes an anthem, it needs to be a warning. Are you praying in a way that you're threatening the forces of the spiritual enemy? I've got to stop and say some people aren't. If the subsistence of your prayer is give me a good day or thank you for the food, (laughs) you need to discover what Jesus already knew. And if we're ever going to make a significant difference, you're ever, I'm ever, make a significant difference in the throne room of God, we've got to understand what Jesus already knew. So let's get into this a little bit more specifically. Scholar John Lang says that within this prayer, we find the basis of every divine promise, every human sorrow and want, and every Christian aspiration for the good of others. That's a heavy load. That's a big ticket. Verse 9. I think that this begins to shape the prayer. First point, the person on which our hope rests. The person on which our hope rests. Jesus starts off with, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Why would he start off with this? I think this sets up the rest of it. You see, whoever you think God to be will shape the way you pray. Isn't that true? If you have a faulty belief in who God is, if you look at him like a buddy from out of town, your prayers are going to relate to what you might say to a buddy from out of town. If you think that he's a person who's against you, it's going to affect how you pray. If you're going to think that he's an awful lot like you, it's going to make you pray accordingly. I think he starts off with this is because it's meant to change you. Prayer changes things, but fundamentally it is true. The Bible study leader that I had all those years ago had it right to a degree Prayer does change you. In the moment you say, our Father in heaven, the Greek term, Father, Pater, coming from the Aramaic, the idea of Abba, Father, all of a sudden you see this personal viewpoint, this God who's leaning in like a father would lean in. Now I understand in the context of an audience this size, we've got bad examples of fathers. Just stretch out a little bit and imagine what a good father's like. Providing, encouraging, protecting. All of those things are wrapped up in that. Our father, very personal. Then he says, in heaven. So you've got this incredibly personal dynamic, but he's in heaven. And the heaven is not meant to convey distance It's meant to create transcendence. In other words, he controls things. And you see this from, he moves past us to hallowed be your name. Holy be your name. Respectful, awesome, incredible, majestic. Right within that first part of the prayer. Doesn't it change the way you pray? Absolutely. 
There's not adjectives strung together. There's not arrows shot in the crowd or into the heavens. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Read a story this week. Uh, Some of you know, if you're the older crowd, of the singer Madonna. One of the things I didn't know about Madonna, she was uh, really into praying, really into a Jewish form of mysticism called Kabbalah. Matter of fact, in her um, concerts, she actually demanded in the rider, when she would come in, a rider simply the demands that the performing act expects to be delivered, and the host does that. She and her rider says she wanted a specifically prepared soundproof haven so she can meditate and pray before she hits the stage. She asked that there be green sheeting on the walls, cushions, floors, or cushions on the floor, no couches, no chairs, cushions, green walls, completely plastered on the walls, ceiling, everything had to be green, soundproof, doesn't want to hear anything. It doesn't matter if the band before her is loud. She doesn't want to hear anything. Why? Disturbs her prayers. Disturbs her peace. Matter of fact, in her writer, it's called her peace room. See, because she views God that way. You see, her theology, her idea of God, she's got to condition the room. She can't have extra distractions. If God is going to hear Madonna, everything has to be coordinated because Madonna sees God as impotent. She sees God as weak. She doesn't see God as her father that she goes with throughout the day because her God's made up. She doesn't see God as hallowed be your name because she needs this room to be created for God to somehow get close to her. Do you see how that changes everything? How you see God absolutely changes everything. I think verse 9 speaks to the question of, who do you take me for? What do you think about me? That's the spinal column of all our prayers, isn't it? The reality is, is that Jesus knew this. And now the disciples are discovering. The first point, the person on which our hope rests, is the focal point in which our prayers are prayed. Before that prayer even comes off your lips, the meditation of who God is is absolutely paramount. Stop. Consider. He's your Father. He's close. He's in heaven. He's majestic. Hallowed be His name. He's completely other. And in that moment, you worship. You don't start into the laundry list till you take the time to understand and meditate on who he is. Because here's the thing. I'm betting here. Your laundry list will change. If you meditate on who God is, who your father is, I think it changes what you pray for next. The person on which our hope rests, the second part, verse 10, the purpose for which we pray I think it speaks, verse 9 is, who do you think I am? Verse 10 is, in light of who I am, what do you really want the most? If we put it in question form, that's what I think we're saying. And Jesus says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I need to take a little journey here and explain this, because as we do at Grace Fellowship, when we ask 
or when we explore uh, passages, we ask ourselves questions. And this got me going. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done. Aren't you the sovereign? We've already looked at verse 8. He knows what you need before you ask. The idea of why am I praying surfaces in some minds. But in this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Hold on a second. Doesn't that give you the impression that it might not happen? What's going on here? How do we understand this? Wait a minute. I, I, I pray this. What if I don't pray this or I don't pray this the right way? Is, is the kingdom on the balance sheets here? Is it, is it tottering? But if I do pray it, to, does, does my prayer bring this in? We've got to stop. There's a lot of really important things to consider here. 1703 to 1758, Jonathan Edwards lived, uh, wrote a lot of things, the preeminent theologian that America's ever produced. And he talks about an idea of two wills in God. It's very, very important to understand the purpose for which we pray and the life that we live to explore this. So hang on to your seat. Hold someone's hand next to you. We're going to get a little deep here. Jonathan Edwards explored this idea of will of command and the will of decree. In other words, it's the idea of God expressing himself in his governing character and in his overriding purpose. Now, before we get into this, as we think about this, we do this all the time in our life. We have two wills constantly going on. I've told you the story in my life, uh, of watching a Steelers game, uh, if you've been around here for any length of time, you know I'm a Steelers fan. Watching the Steelers fan, we're playing the Baltimore Ravens. Big game. I want to watch the game. That's my will. I hear a small voice coming from the stairwell. Dad, the toilet's clogged. I have now two wills. I will to watch the game, and I will that that toilet doesn't overflow. Guess which will wins? The toilet needs fixed. It's a greater will. I want to watch the game. I really don't want that toilet to overflow. Examples like this. Uh, I want to sleep in, but I really want the paycheck of going to work. You, you functionally live in that space. My wife asked me to pick something up from the store. I forget. I pull into the driveway. I, I want to rest. It's been a long day. But I remember that I forgot something. I really want to pro- provide for my family and my wife. I want to honor her request. So once since my will wants to do this, but there's a greater will that overrides that. Some of you experienced that even this morning, Sunday. I want to sleep in, but I really want to go to church. I want to, uh, kids, I I want to sleep in, but I really don't want to suffer the wrath of my parents if I don't go to school. We live in this all the time. We always have these competing wills, and we have one will that's at the surface 
And the one will that overrides. And while those are the things that we move through, that's exactly the dynamic that God himself has, although it's on a, an eminently larger scale. Let's walk through this. The first of all, we'll call the first part of his will, the will of desire. The will of desire, we're going to put on the screen so you can see this. We put a compass on this because I think it relates to God's character or his direction. You've bumped into passages that talk about God is not willing that any should perish. That's absolutely true. He's, we look in the Old Testament. God doesn't get his kicks on people perishing. But the thing is, we know people do perish. So God's will of desire relates to his, his character. That's who he is. He doesn't get his kicks. That's his compass. That's his character. Edwards will say it's his will of his command. But on top of that... There's another will, and that's what we'll call the will of decree. The will of decree has the idea of a map, a destination. In other words, you don't often recognize will of decree as much as you look back and see will of decree. In other words, there's nothing that you can do to thwart the plan of God ultimately, but you definitely engage when it comes to his will of desire or his command. Let me illustrate this by two examples. And like I said, we function on this all the time and God does on an eminently larger scale. If you remember the story in Exodus, Exodus chapter eight, one and two says, the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you you refuse to let them go, behold, I'll plague all of your country with frogs. In other words, God's expressed desire was for the Pharaoh to let his people go. It's wrong for them to be in captivity. But as you know, there's another verse, Exodus 4.21. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power. And I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. You see what's going on there? He expresses his desire, but then he lets us in on his decree. Now, let me just pause here for a second. Some of you might go, then God's responsible for Pharaoh's sin. No, not at all. You see, God just pulls back his grace. Pharaoh would be even more wicked than he was if it wasn't for the constraining grace of God. He just simply pulls it back, and in pulling it back, the expression of hardening his heart, Pharaoh does that. You see, the same is true for you and me. If it wasn't for the grace of God, you'd be incredibly wicked. If it wasn't for God's restraining grace, even before you became a follower of Christ, your wickedness would be off the scale. So God constrains the amount of evil that someone does demonstrate. So he's in control, but they're really responsible. The plot gets a little thicker here. Because we've got his desire, we've got his decree. Now let's figure out why. What is going on here? Why is it that Pharaoh's heart will be hardened, even though God told him to let my people go? If you look in Exodus 14, 4, it says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them, talking about Israel, and I will get glory over Pharaoh. And all his hosts and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. That's incredibly important. 
You see, the thing is, the reason why this is happening is God wants you. He wants me. He wants all of the Egyptians, all the people of Israel to know who he is. Pharaoh's the mechanism in that, the means you could say. Let my people go. You're not going to let them go. The reason why you're not going to let them go, because in the end, I'm going to get glory over you. I'm going to show that I am the Lord of lords. I am the king of kings. There is no one on the earth that is greater than me. I will get glory. I'll reveal my character to people in a profound way, precisely through the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. He's responsible God is sovereign. We see desire and decree working together. We don't understand the fine print in it all. But we understand the borders and the boundaries. I think that's an example of this. So when he's saying in this prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think we're working. That's the desire. He says, enter into my desire, but not for one moment do you think that somehow your prayers are supporting or it's somehow resting on it. It's the idea of you're invited into. Your eyes are opened up for this kingdom coming. Another example, the most profound example I could give you, that one's from the Old Testament. This one's from the New. If you look at the crucifixion and death of Jesus Christ, we have the same idea of desire and decree working here as well. You've got a variety of people that are involved in the crucifixion of Christ. You've got the crowd in Luke 23, 21. They keep shouting, crucify him, crucify him. You've got Pilate, who could have released Christ, but doesn't. He delivers Jesus over, it says, to their will in Luke 23, 24, and 25. You've got the soldiers in Luke 23, 36 through 37. They could have pulled them down off of there. They were against Christ. You've got Satan in Luke 22, 3 through 6. He's actually animating Judas. Then you've got Judas himself. Is he responsible? But then we've got these passages. We've got these things that are difficult to understand, but nevertheless true. They're all responsible for what they did. But in the end of the day, God had decreed that Christ would go to the cross. And we know that from Acts 2, 23 and 24. Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. You crucified and killed. You're responsible for what you did. But this was God's plan. God had decreed this because he's going to get glory from this. His desire is not that you murder somebody, but his decree is greater. There are two wills, you could say, two senses of God's will. More than that, in Isaiah 53, 4, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. More than that, Acts 4, 27, the early church recognized this when they were praying for boldness. For truly in the city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. All the gangs there, soldiers and the religious leaders and, and Pilate, they're all there. They're conspiring against Christ to do, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Wow, they're responsible. 
God has determined. It's God's will that you don't treat somebody like that. It's his desire. But he has a decree that supersedes that. I think that's how we understand this prayer. A couple people who figured it out much smarter than me, John Piper says, Therefore, we know it was not the will of God that Judas and Pilate and Herod and the Gentile soldiers and the Jewish crowds disobeyed the moral law of God, his desire, you could say, by sinning and delivering Jesus up to be crucified. But we also know that it was the will of God that this come to pass. Therefore, we know that God in some sense wills what he does not will in another sense. Hang on. Howard Marshall, we must certainly distinguish between what God would like to see happen and what actually he does will to happen. Two wills. John Frame, fantastic theologian, in the book, No Other God, says this, God's will is sometimes thwarted because his will, he wills it to be because he has given one of his desires precedence over the other. Another statement. God does not intend to bring about everything he values, but he never fails to bring about what he intends. You see the compass. You see the map. We don't understand all the aspects. We do know this. There are two wills. And so when he prays in this passage, the purpose for which we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, you really affect change. You are inside of that. You can really bring change because he tells you you can. But also knowing that his will of decree is over that. He knows your thoughts, yes. But as you spend time considering your hallowed father, it changes you. So that your prayers, you're invited in to see him move. And even in your times of prayer, he gives you words and perspectives that you wouldn't have gotten on your own. Matter of fact, we know from Romans that the Holy Spirit intercedes as we pray because we don't know how we ought to pray. Even in among that changing, God's kingdom is meant to come and we're supposed to pray for that to our hallowed heavenly Father. As the band is coming up, this is just the beginning of pushing out of dock in this passage. It's important to recognize that that first part, verse 9, asks us, who do you take me to be? Who I am to you? Verse 10 talks about that being so, what do you really want most? We really want your kingdom to come. I want your rule to come into my life. I want your, your reign in my life. I want the reign in other people's lives. And I want to see your sovereign rule that we know will come again. Come. And I want to be a part of that. I want to trace what you're doing in history because I know there's a destination. And I know this is your desire for me now to be part of this. Uh, this last few weeks, my wife has been cleaning out some stuff and on my uh, bed stand, I noticed a few places that my kids had traced and they been plaster of Paris. If you've ever done that, your kids, when they're young, you trace. I noticed that on my bed stand. One of my kids, their hand is a lot bigger now. But I'm able to, since I see that trace, I'm able to pick that up and remember that moment and say, wow, there was a time where their hand was like this and now it's like that. I think that's the same idea. 
Heavenly Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. As I get inside of that, there's an invitation for me to enter in. Yes, he's the sovereign. Yes, he knows. Yes, there's a decree moving forward. But I'm able to understand his desire. Get inside of that. I'm able to trace what he's doing as I engage in that relationship of prayer. And as I look back over time, I can see his tracing in my life. And I go, wow, the kingdom is coming. His rule is more established in my life. I know him better. My, my neighbors and family and friends know him better, his rule, because it's in my life. And now it goes out and it spreads all over and eventually it's going to be spread. But we have the opportunity to be a part of that. And he says, that's how you should pray. That's the posture. It's the person. This is what we pray for. The next three weeks, we're going to move through this. I encourage you to spend time in the passage. Let this wash over you. Let this begin to change you because we want to know what Jesus experienced. And since he went out of his way to say this, you can gain insight if you take the time to marinate in the truths. Would you pray with me? Lord, we'd ask you to help us in this. Uh, We struggle We think that when we pray, we're not getting much done. We admit that. We admit that our minds wander. That's who we are. We admit that sometimes we really don't think you're interested. Sometimes we think you're too far away. There's a lot of things that we believe or or feel that are wrong. Help us with that. We're sorry about that. There's so many ways that we fall short. This is just another one. We find our refuge in you, Christ. Find our hope in you. That you meet us even at this point of our weakness. Would you cultivate in us an understanding, an experience with the truth so that we can begin to understand more what you already know? You gave us this model. You gave the disciples this model wasn't by accident. It's because we need to experience what you already know. So help us to remember who you are, your person, and how that prayer, that mindset of who we're praying to changes us. Pray that you'd help us to remember why we're praying, what we're looking for, your rule in our life, your rule in our lives, and we really do affect that change. We can know your desire, and we can affect that change on that level. We also know your decree that your kingdom is going to come. So thank you for inviting us into that. And thank you for the privilege of tracing your hand in the lives of other people in our own life. Prayer is that thing that we've devalued so much. Help us to not move in such a way that we might make much of you. And we'll be sure to give you the honor and glory. For that is the destination that we are moving toward in all things. So we ask you to help us open the eyes of our heart so we might see this. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.